to today's Greenhouse Environmental Humanities Book Talk. I'm Dolly Edgensen, and this is Finarna Edgensen, and we're the co-hosts for the Book Talk and the co-directors of the Greenhouse Environmental Humanities Research Group at the University of Stavanger. We're happy today to welcome Peter Deverne, who is Professor of International Relations at the University of British Columbia in Canada. And he'll be presenting his book, AI in the Wild, Sustainability in the Age of Artificial Intelligence, which is out with MIT Press this year. And I'll also note that this talk is special in our series and that it's being done in conjunction with the Norwegian Researcher School in Environmental Humanities, uh, which we are having a course this week hosted here at the University of Stavanger called Doing Environmental Humanities in a Digital World. So we're very happy that we could tie in this book talk today. So I'll give it over to you, Peter. Well, thank you very much for the generous invitation to join you today. Uh, I wish I was there in person. I must admit that Norway, of all the places I visited in the world, ranks uh, number one for me. So there you go. I've been there a few times and I'm quite an extraordinary uh, chess fan. And I have to say a lot of people talk about their sports fans and Magnus Carlsen is by far um, the top for me among the sporting heroes of the world right now. So uh, there you go. Uh, and I know he's very famous in Norway, but when I tell people that usually they're like, hmm, that's an interesting sports hero to pick. But for me, he is number one. So I wish I was there, but I do really appreciate the opportunity to talk about my book, AI in the Wild. And I thought I'd start off, I have just 15 minutes to give you a sense of the book, and my hope is we'll have a, a dynamic conversation and lots of interesting questions. And I, I, I think of myself as a social scientist, but I have to say, um, humanities is my true love. And so I try and weave uh, uh, lots of humanities work into my um, writing. So uh, I, I really look forward to feedback. If anyone's had a chance to read the book, any comments, uh, that'd be really interesting. So I'm going to start with sharing a screen and then I'll unshare the screen, but I want to show um, everyone the cover of this book. And so just bear with me one moment as I show you this cover. And I thought it would be an appropriate way to, to start just giving you a sense of what I tried to do in this book by showing you this cover. So one of the things that, that um, I'm, I'm aiming for in this book is to bring into conversation uh, what I see as an extraordinary increase in the power of artificial intelligence, particularly the power of machine learning and neural networks in particular to use the technique of deep learning to analyze big data and find correlations and look for trends and, um, and predict. And I'm trying to understand what this means for what I see as one of the biggest concerns the world's currently facing, this escalating global environmental crisis, or in this particular book, I think about as an escalating crisis of sustainability. So not just a crisis on the environmental side, but also a crisis on the side of, of inequality, of exploitation, of just kind of a general turbulence that I see in the world. I am an international relations scholar. And so what I tried to do is look at uh, what I see as both the, the good and potentially the, the, the risks and dangers that artificial intelligence is bringing for our quest to move towards sustainability. And I have to say, as somebody who adores the game of chess, one of the things that started me down this path, which began, I must admit, uh, about 30 years ago in my curiosity about artificial intelligence, has been trying to understand the extraordinary ability of 
artificial intelligence to play the game of chess. And so for the last 30 years, I've been kind of watching um, these so-called chess engines and their ability to find mistakes in human play and their ability to uh, basically become by far the best chess players in the world. And mm, I kind of thought mm, doing interesting things, moving us towards what I see as kind of a better understanding of the game, but, but really just showing humans where they went wrong. And then starting uh, a couple of years ago, the world of chess was kind of rocked by a company called DeepMind in the United Kingdom, which developed a chess engine called AlphaZero that was able to play chess in a very, very different way. And instead of the standard programming that went into creating a chess engine, this used this deep learning technique and it used a neural network and it had the chess engine teach itself the game of chess by playing itself millions and millions of games and using that as its source of information and not providing this computer with any of the human knowledge that had been created over the last hundreds of years. None of the games of Magnus Carlsen, none of his extraordinary genius went into this. Only how to play the game, just the rules of the game. And what came out of this experiment was really quite stunning to me as a chess player and somebody who really admires the game. This was a chess engine that played very differently than any other chess engine we'd ever seen in history before. First of all, it was by far the strongest chess program that we'd ever seen. It just completely um, overwhelmed the top chess engine computer chess engine in the world. But what's more interesting to me is how it played. It played creatively, it played dynamically, it played aggressively, and many people would even argue it played intuitively in that it was doing things that wasn't just kind of raw calculation. It had actually taught itself how to play in ways that humans had never thought of before. And so I'd have to ask Magnus Carlsen, in person, I'm not completely sure, I don't know him, but I presume he's now studying the games of AlphaZero to help himself now become better. And in the past, we'd never used chess engines this way before. We'd only used it to find our own mistakes. Suddenly this was teaching us new things, discovering things that we'd never thought of before. And so I kind of, my eyes kind of lit up and I thought, wow, that's really interesting. This really must um, mean a lot for the world and a lot for the potential sustainability. And I approached MIT Press, which published this book. And I said, it's very interesting to me that you see yourself as the world's top press publishing on artificial intelligence. And since the 1960s, you've published hundreds and hundreds of books on AI. You see yourself as the top press in the world on sustainability. You've published even more books on sustainability, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books. But in all your history, you've never had a book have a conversation between these two, what you might think about as dynamic processes that are changing the world. And I pitched this to the press and said, let's have a book that brings the two together. And they, well, basically said, okay, let's go with that. And that's kind of what the book is trying to do. It's trying to start a conversation. It's trying to get people hopefully to research this, think about this more deeply. And in particular, one of the things I tried to do is look at both what I see as the good and again, the risks. And so I started with what I see as one of the good things uh, of AI, it's creativity. And so I asked the press, would it be possible for AI to actually design my book cover? And they said, okay, that's a creative idea. And so they did. So the book cover that you see is AI's interpretation of the link between heaven and earth. And what I really liked about this particular interpretation is the dynamic colors that AI chose and the kind of wild nature of what it sees as this link between heaven and earth. And so that's where the image 
on this book cover comes from. So that gives you a sense of, of what I see as some of the real creative um, fun ways that AI is, is doing uh, some, some good. And so that's one of the things the book does is it goes in and it looks at all the ways that AI is, is starting to help us improve sustainability. And it looks at things like some of the new robotic techniques uh, that we see around the world. There's a story in the book about a semi-autonomous submersible on the Great Barrier Reef that is swimming now the Great Barrier Reef. And with much greater precision, it's able to find starfish that are destroying this reef. And it's injecting bile salts into these starfish and are eliminating the starfish. And these starfish are doing huge damage to the Great Barrier Reef. If you're aware of what's going on there, of course, much of the damage to the Great Barrier Reef is occurring as a result of climate change. But a lot of it is also, of course, a result of these starfish, roughly about 40% of all of this damage is from these starfish. And so getting rid of them, a good thing. Another example of the kind of creative ways that artificial intelligence is really starting to help is a device in the tropical rainforest of the world where I've done a lot of my own primary research, where we now have listening devices in the canopy of these trees that are listening for the sounds of illegal logging, the rumblings of uh, chainsaws and, and of trucks and of, of, of movement in the forest that, that, that sounds suspicious to the artificial intelligence. And it's sending a automatic alert to uh, the forest rangers to try and get them to go and stop this illegal logging ahead of time. And again, something that I see is, is offering great potential to try and help stop some of the uh, illegal logging. It's also turning out to be actually very valuable for tracking some biodiversity. It's such a powerful device in terms of listening to the sounds of the rainforest. It's been able to tell us where jaguars are moving in the forest, not so much by hearing the jaguar because it's so silent in the forest, but by all the other sounds in the forest as the jaguar moves through. And now we're able to see where the jaguars are and track them in new and interesting ways. And so again, kind of very interesting ways that AI is moving us forward. At my own university, another example of a very, um, what I see potentially revolutionary idea is my colleagues here at UBC are working on what they call a self-driving laboratory. And they have artificial intelligence um, basically uh, experimenting on trying to find new ways to improve solar technology. And what's really creative about this self-driving laboratory is it's proposing its own hypotheses after analyzing huge amounts of big data. And instead of the human researchers offering it hypotheses, it's thinking up its own hypotheses and then going in to investigate. And the idea here is these self-driving laboratories could potentially come up with just dramatically different and new ideas, the same way these chess programs are coming up with new ways to play the game of chess. And these researchers see this as applicable not only to potentially solar, but to all different environmental technologies. And they're hoping to scale this up around the world. Very ambitious. I'm kind of proud of these colleagues. They call this uh, particular robotic laboratory, which works at 10 times the speed of humans, uh, of team of 10 humans, actually. It's working so quickly. They call it Ada uh, in honor of Ada Lovelace, which I thought was a very creative idea. There's also lots of other ways that AI in this book, in the book, that I look at uh, are doing uh, interesting things. Another example is in the <clears throat> corporate world, we're seeing uh, a fair bit of efficiency gains happening uh, in the management of global supply chains and in the way companies are, are, are using energy and trying to reduce waste. And basically by automating these processes, it's helping these companies find what you might think about as eco-efficiencies in the supply chains. And just to give you one uh, idea uh, of what I mean, uh, if you look at Google, 
which uh, of course being the big powerful company that it is, it ended up buying DeepMind, which created this chess program that I talked about. Uh, and that's of course now under the company Alphabet, but basically it's Google. But anyway, Google took the learning from uh, this chess program and it used it to automate its data centers, the cooling systems in particular. And by doing this, has uh, Google's been able already to reduce the amount of energy being used in these cooling systems by 30% by using automation instead of having human operators decide um, how to adjust the different cooling systems. And so again, lots of really interesting dynamic ways that AI is helping. And of course, I could give you lots of other examples and we can maybe talk about that in the Q&A, the advances and improvements to climate modeling, to deforestation modeling, the advances in smart cities, the importance of self-driving cars and potentially reducing deaths and accidents. So lots and lots of stuff here going on. However, I am a, a, a international relations scholar and I'm a political scientist by training. And so my kind of natural nature is to also look at the dark side of things. And so one of the things this book does is it actually pays even more attention to what I see as some of the big, big dangers. And I'll just give you a very quick idea of what I mean by some of these dangers that I see AI bringing for the world. One of the big dangers is there's a lot of hype going on here in the corporate world and in the big governments that are controlling AI, ones like uh, China and the United States. And there's a real tendency in this world as they look for startups, look for money and big companies like Google look for investors to basically only talk about the good of what AI is bringing and kind of make us all feel like this is going to somehow create a sustainability revolution. And they're kind of muffling conversations about what I see as the dark side. So I think that's one of the, the big dangers here is we're getting a very lopsided look at what AI is doing. Now that's starting to change. I think there's lots more people saying, oh, hold on. There's lots of potential problems here. Other big dangers though I see that many other people have talked about is I think this actually feeds into what I see as a techno optimism of the world, that technology is somehow gonna fix our sustainability crisis. And all of a sudden we're deciding that robots that swim the Great Barrier Reef and kill starfish for us are gonna solve our problem. Well, the cause of these outbursts of starfish, they're actually native to the reef, but the outbursts are not native to the reef that destroy this amount. It's agricultural runoff and it's the uh, nutrients and pollutants coming off of industrial agriculture of the Australian interior, well, there's the real source of the problem, yet we're creating devices that swim in and kill the starfish. And so there's a danger here that, again, it kind of feeds into, um, you know, we're going to solve everything if we can just get a better technology. And of course, technology bring big risks. AI in particular, I argue in the book, also bring particular risks. There's risks around data privacy. There's lots of risks around bias. There's a particular risk here with deep learning and these neural networks around what I call transparency and explainability. We often don't know exactly how this AI makes its decision. And it's almost impossible to unpack it because it's used so many different variables and analyzed so much data. We just have to accept its conclusions. And so that brings a lot of potential, okay, AI says do this, but nobody really questions whether we should do it. They might not look at the bigger questions, the ethics, et cetera. And with that, AI also brings a lot of, you might think about as political risks for the world. One of them is AI, which is very good at playing chess and automating cooling systems and making robots work better, is also very good at, for example, creating um, 
well, uh, misinformation and disinformation and automating that over social media. And so all of a sudden it's feeding into what you might think about as this post-truth politics and this loss of trust that the world's having in knowledge and information. And it's speeding up the um, degree with which this is uh, moving through the world. It's also concentrating power in these big businesses because it's a very expensive technology and it requires lots of high level capacity to do it. And so you see these, these big companies like Google and Microsoft and Amazon and Alibaba in China are controlling AI. We also, of course, see the same technology that's helping us figure out efficiencies in supply chains, helping us, well, extract mineral resources faster. It's helping mining companies pull out more resources from wherever they're working. But it's also, of course, helping oil companies survive the pressure from climate activists around the world because it's helping oil companies find new sources, extract it more cheaply, get it out more quickly. So the same, you know, there's a dual purpose technology that's helping us. It's also fueling the um, basically capitalist system. And so one of the things that's really important here is I'm not talking about artificial intelligence as some kind of super intelligence and some you know, human level AI that's smarter than the smartest person on the planet. I'm talking about AI that's diffusing through the entire world economy, more like electricity did a hundred years ago, and it's infusing all other technologies. And so with that, it means it's bringing a supercharging of basically the whole capitalist system. And with that, of course, it means huge uh, potential increases in, let's say, the extraction of cobalt and rare earth elements and coltan, which is feeding into creating the AI, but also, of course, creating massive amounts of potential e-waste as we move towards you know, changing all the world's cars to self-driving cars and all the world's refrigerators to smart refrigerators and so on and so forth. And so the kind of big overall conclusion of this book is that, uh, yes, we should embrace this technology. It's doing a lot of good, but boy, we need to put constraints, particularly regulatory constraints. We need to govern this technology. And maybe we even need to start thinking about certifying some AI as sustainable and responsible and other AI as kind of dangerous and disastrous for example, who wants killer robots, which is, of course, AI. So with that, I'll conclude and uh, look forward to all the questions from the group of people here. Thank you. Thank you so much. This is really fascinating. And yeah, I think there's a lot of things we can talk about. Uh, uh, I'd like to start off with a question. I have both some small and some big questions, but I think we should start with the big one, actually. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's interesting how you hear, uh, to hear you say that how uh, AI basically is a, well, a tool for improving capitalism. I mean, making capitalism more efficient, more powerful. Uh, and we also here to talk about AI as a, a revolutionary technology. Again, it is this increase in productivity are revolutionary, but do you envision a place for a truly like radical revolutionary AI that on its own uh, decides that, no, we actually need to do something radically different than what we're doing. Have you come across anything like this? Yes, I, I think people have to have kind of thought um, out of the box about a potential for AI, probably further into the future, more like 30 or 50 years to kind of reach this super intelligence where it's basically able to be intelligent enough to uh, make itself even more intelligent until it becomes a kind of a, uh, a process that leads to some kind of dramatic change in total knowledge in the system. And one of the arguments that I think is not unreasonable is an AI might come to the conclusion that we need a planet 
to survive and therefore we better start managing our planet in a way that that will allow us all to survive and then we'll start coming up with new innovative ways to move forward but i see that as kind of still pretty pretty distant and rather speculative and what i would see is more urgent now is kind of the immediate term uh, getting at big problems like climate change, trying to reduce tropical deforestation, trying to stop overfishing. And so here I do think AI, par por portions of it, are doing lots of good. So around, let's say, illegal fishing of the oceans, AI is helping us now track and try and understand where illegal fishing is occurring and trying to find out better mechanisms to help understand when boats get to port, who might be carrying illegal fish, et cetera. And so uh, I think the form of AI that we're seeing that's creating all this kind of corporate interest and this huge amount of money that we're seeing surging through the international system, it's really what you might think about as narrow AI and its particular applications of AI, like a chess program. That's why I use that as an example and not anything that's amalgamating yet into any kind of machine that's going to be smart enough to actually um, teach us how to stop killing this planet. Yeah, so anyway, we're still in the early days of chess programs. We haven't had uh, the truly groundbreaking one yet. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes, that's potentially true, yes. <laughs> Where they solve the game, you mean. <laughs> so we have a couple of questions now uh, in the chat. So Roberto is first. I'll ask you to unmute. Yes. Okay. Hi. Thank you. Oh, I just see that I entered with my husband's Zoom, so my name is Julia and not Roberto. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, <laughs> um, but that shouldn't be a problem. Um, thank you very, very much uh, for your presentation. Your book is already on my book list that I have. Uh, <laughs> um, I have, uh, I have one comment and one question. The comment is you might be interested in uh, a research project that's going on in Berlin at the uh, University of Technology. And the project leader is Tilman Santarius and they're working on digitalization and socioeconomic transformation. So they're working with this theory that's very, um, yeah, they use it a lot in Germany, socioeconomic uh, transformation. Uh, I can put the link on uh, in the chat so you can have a look at it. Um, so that was the comment. And my question is, it kind of relates to your previous book, Environmentalism for the Rich. Um, so what, what do you think is, uh, are the inequalities and dependencies that IE creates um, can create in 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 the question of uh, uh, like in in regard to sustainability, especially when we come to when we talk about um, rural areas that are uh, less developed or countries in general that are less developed. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, that is a superb question and critically important. And I think there's a couple of different ways to think about and answer that. One is is at the kind of international scale. Uh, there's no question that AI is um, benefiting the most powerful countries, particularly militarized countries of the world. So the vast majority of the AI uh, military research is in Russia, China, and the United States. The vast majority of the commercial AI is just in two countries, the United States and China. China has set 2030 as the goal to have leadership in artificial intelligence. And when you have consulting firms kind of calculate, you know, where is the money from artificial intelligence going? You discover that 
a huge portion, maybe 70% ends up in China and the United States. And so this is really not a technology that's at least in terms of the financial value being equally distributed around the world. Now, of course, there's lots of examples where the developing world potentially can benefit from artificial intelligence. An example would be free apps. Many people in, in poor countries of the world have cell phones and being able to use an app, let's say as a farmer to quickly diagnose a disease um, that's striking your crops could potentially be very valuable and inexpensive and, 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 and and important. That said, a lot of people are deeply concerned about this issue about not only the money flowing very differently, but this idea that you pointed out on dependency and that AI has a potential to lock in a lot of people who are being told this is for sustainability, but end up putting them in more dependent relationships. And the area that I see this of particular concern is in farming and the move towards what people are calling smart agriculture and this idea that we're going to be able to have AI be able to uh, apply, let's say, fertilizer and herbicide and pesticide uh, more precisely, and thus we can reduce the amounts being used, and this is good for the environment, and they'll, they'll add it all up, and they'll say this promotes sustainability. But you think about this from the perspective of a farmer already dependent on, let's say, modified seeds or uh, on industrial inputs like the chemicals the fertilizer, the pesticide, but then all of a sudden they're also dependent on tractors and machinery that has AI software in it that they can't repair and they're reliant on big companies to actually you know, service it. And they're usually probably in some kind of rental structure rather than ownership structure. And so you can see lots of scenarios where we're calculating things up at a business scale and saying this is sustainability, but at the local scale, you get this kind of big, dramatic, unequal set of consequences for the people, right? And not necessarily good for the environment because, of course, as I said, with the techno-optimism, when we decide smart agriculture is our solution, smart agriculture is almost always wrapped in industrial agriculture and increasing efficiencies, right? So, you know, we're seeing all the companies amalgamating, getting bigger and more powerful and controlling more and more of the world's agriculture, right? So you see the argument. So, yeah, a very important critical question. Yeah, good. So we have a question from Gabriella. Uh, I shall unmute you there. So I'm going to pick up on a couple of things. So I have a couple different sort of categories. One is what's good versus bad AI, one. The second is what's sustainability to you? And then the third, as a food systems historian, I'm, I want to kind of challenge a little bit uh, the idea about AI in ag. I mean, you kind of picked up that it's the big corporatization. And so that's really a very small piece and it's a very Western piece of how AI kind of works. And, there's also a lot of satellite stuff that's already happening that has nothing to do with AI. It's more remote sensing, just that's more a comment, but I'd be interested in the, your response to the other two questions. And I'm sorry, I haven't read your book. So if it's there, I apologize. 
No, I appreciate the questions and, uh, and, and, and that's uh, very, very valuable. I'll even co comment on the last point. <clears throat> uh, I, I do think that's actually really fascinating and interesting. And one of the things about AI and that I tried to bring out in the book, even though I tried to highlight a lot of these risks and dangers, because my basic argument in the book is that we're getting a, <clears throat> a hyping of AI and because uh, there's a, 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 a super excitement, you know, as it starts with, with actually not chess, which is a story I started with. It started with the game of Go and basically DeepMind, that company, right, created a, a Go program that beat the world Go champion. And that's why China actually, the leadership in China completely flipped over and said, we're going to pursue AI as our top strategic priority because they were also gobsmacked that it was able to do that, right? So, uh, you know, one of the things with this is it's diffusing very quickly and it's got the dual effects. And so it's bringing lots of risk, but it's also, as you said, I think potentially very valuable, even at the small scale, even at the farming level, again, the, the, the potential for AI to uh, provide uh, freeze uh, tools, etc. So, yeah, it, it it it's complicated on that. On your two big questions about good versus bad, and my definition of sustainability. Let me start with my understanding of sustainability. For me, very critically, <clears throat> I think of sustainability as not just sustainability um, in the environmental sense and sustainability of the planet in terms of its environmental systems. But for me, sustainability is also very much. Uh, about social justice and community well-being. And so one of the things that I talk about in the book is that we need to think very carefully about balancing sustainability of the human world as well as the uh, the natural world and that the you know human and communities and particularly marginalized and disenfranchised communities are very much part of the world that I think we need to pursue sustainability for. And that's very important for my understanding and thinking about AI, because one of the things I do that not everybody has, has been as supportive um, as me on this, but I actually have a couple big chapters talking about how AI can contribute to violence and warfare, and that uh, that this could have really big consequences for uh, communities. I also look at how uh, AI can um, turn into technologies of surveillance and can end up um, having very powerful uh, silencing effects on communities uh, and can even be used to suppress and control environmentalists. And the technology in particular that I've got, uh, have deep, deep worries about is facial recognition technology here. And the way you see countries, um, increasingly authoritarian oriented countries, but also uh, many other democratic countries as well that are integrating facial recognition into their surveillance cameras. And now they're able to identify in crowds you know, protesters and then link them up to watch lists. And, you know, in places like China, this puts in a huge uh, control system that basically silences you know, a lot of civil society activism, but environmental activism in particular. So by understanding it broadly like that, I get a lot more than just what some people, when you see a report on AI and the environment, they just kind of talk about how can AI help us, you know, have a better understanding of the risks of climate change and model climate change, right? So now the good versus bad, this is incredibly tricky because most AI brings both the good and bad and it kind of depends on the human handler. And so for me, one of the things I think is critical is assessing what use it's intended for. And that ends up helping us understand if it's doing good or if it's potentially should be banned, right? So um, uh, I'm an opponent actually of facial recognition technology in many different forms, particularly for live facial recognition and monitoring of protest groups. Uh, but 
uh, I think, you know, this is this this is very tricky, too, because you don't want to lose the good that can come from this. And so uh, basically for me, it, it's, as I said, this electricity running through the system. And so we never want to turn it off. Um, but we're going to have to come up with mechanisms like maybe an international certification structure that's going to at least help us understand when it's being used in ways to international community supportive and maybe try and shut down some companies that are trying to use it in ways that we don't want to see it. It's going to be very hard to control, though. This technology is moving fast and, and uh, boy, the startup world. Even facial recognition, which I've been studying a lot recently, it's 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 just diffusing incredibly quickly around the world. Yeah. So your last comment here is really evocative for me. I think about as a historian technology, I'm thinking about uh, Mel Kranzberg's classic loss of technology. So one of them is uh, that technology is neither good nor bad, but nor is it neutral. So it's right. it really shows this well. I think. Uh, yeah, we have, well said. Yeah, we have another question from Mohammed. Let me find you here. There. Hi. Yes. Can you hear me? Yes, you're on. Okay. Uh, thanks. Uh, so my question to Peter, um, first of all, thank you for this uh, excellent book talk. Uh, it was very informative. Um, so, um, it is now established that there is good thing and bad thing in regards to AI. So my question would be to you related to your background as well. So uh, who is supposed to decide what is good, what is bad, using what criteria and to do what? So yeah, that's that's an incredibly important question. <laughs> One I don't feel completely qualified to answer, but certainly I can say that 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 is the the core and central question that the world's going to have to grapple with. Because, of course, uh, you know it, it's it's perspectives vary extraordinarily on that, and and what what I think is a big danger of AI right now is, as again, I say this from somebody who I understand myself as a critical political economist. So I look at the political economy in ways um, to try and think critically about how power through control of money and through state structures can kind of control discourses and can kind of end up um, leading to exploitation. There's no question that if we create an international structure that basically defines what is good and bad AI is when, you know, wealthy uh, countries and the most powerful companies are doing it, it's good. And when it's being used in ways that don't fit into our cultural understanding and doesn't fit into the way we understand concepts like responsibility, then it's bad, then we're going to have a real problem. Now, the world is trying to get together and create an international governance conversation around this. Uh, Canada and France um, have kind of taken leadership on this to try and create an international forum on um, pushing conversations on AI. There's also uh, lots of movement inside countries. In my own country, Canada, both nationally and even my own province of British Columbia, is looking at certification processes around sustainable and responsible AI. And it's probably going to happen everywhere around the world. And that's going to hopefully up, but it's going to have to be a big conversation. It's going to be, it's it's because it's not a a singular technology. 
it's a general purpose technology. This adds a huge complexity to your question too, right? Because it's basically supercharging all technologies. And so going into govern it and decide what even something like, what are the ethical principles that we wanna put in place? Because there's so much variation, it's incredibly hard to do it in a way that isn't so general, it's meaningless, or in ways that become precise and end up hurting some people. Yep. We have two questions in the chat that are actually quite good follow-ups uh, to that. Um, I'll start with uh, Elina Hanekvalvik's question. So she has, you know, so, okay, so we have good AI. We have robust, mature, like trustworthy, solid AI that suggests solutions to very complex challenges in environmental questions. Do you think that people will trust it uh, and follow the, the solutions or recommendations from AI like you might do in chess? I mean, especially considering then you see how people follow recommendations from science nowadays or not. It's a great question and I hope so. And so the reason I started off with the chess story is because I, I love the game of chess. And in some ways I started off with, you know, I love AI. I love the idea that machines can, can, can do this. And so one of my great hopes is as we face what I see as one of the most difficult problems the world's ever faced, climate change. I see the potential for AI, for example, to uh, in, in ways that are, are, are lightning fast, collect data and provide us with information that hopefully the world understands as balanced and accurate and, and, and needing to, to be reacted to, right? And so that's my hope is, is that this, this will occur. That said, uh, I think of uh, artificial intelligence and, I, and, and it's kind of the core theme of this book as not just a technology and not just a potentially quote solution, but also a tool of power. And that fundamentally, that's how a lot of corporations and states understand it. It's, it's being pursued because it enhances power. It lets people, for example, empower their state security agencies to um, more uh, widely and precisely and quickly surveil activism and protest and dissent, right? Right. But it's also a tool of power in that it's, uh, you know, allowing um, the ability for drones to more precisely assassinate. And, and we're not long away from uh, drones that are going to be able to, on their own, decide who uh, to kill. Right. Um, if, if, if people do that. Now, most militaries are saying they're going to always have the kill decision left in the hands of a human. But you can imagine AI working at the speed that it does of a chess computer where, you know, I hate to say it, but Magnus Carlsen doesn't have a hope to ever beat um, AlphaZero, the top deep learning neural network chess engine, right? And so you could imagine a drone or a tank or a, or, or a fighter jet, which is using its own kill decisions. It will go so fast and it will be so much better. The only way to respond will be to also have your own AI fighter jet. And so all of a sudden we have AIs battling each other. It's a very scary, it's a very scary prospect. So yes, I certainly hope that the world embraces all the tremendous good that this thing can do and that we then trust the data and move. But I would even say that there's so much disinformation and misinformation and the rise of populism. There's also going to be lots of political forces that try and undermine our confidence in that AI generated data. So, Which, by the way, I think will be better data. Like I, I believe in AI. It's doing amazing things. So as a follow-up to that, one could look at both 
other types of resistance to AI, but also subversive uses of AI. So my colleague Tag Westbrook then asked, so what might poachers, illegal loggers, et cetera, do in response to AI? So his concern is that counter technologies uh, are, are overcome in some way by criminal innovations in time. I mean, this is something you see happen. Uh, so how can these weaknesses in AI and the systems behind it be exploited? Or even turned around, right? Yeah. That they might adopt AI to tell them where somebody is, right? Yeah, no, it's a very important point. And, and of course, in the in the wonderful world of computer science, there's a long tradition of, of publishing your results and making that available to the world, but even sometimes putting software for free online to help innovation and move other people forward. And so there's many different ways criminal organizations could end up using this technology. And, you know, a simple example is one of the most powerful ways that cybercrime is now accelerating is automating it through AI. And so you can just imagine criminal organizations becoming more and more adept at figuring out ways to break into our bank accounts, steal our identities, et cetera. And you can see that with illegal loggers and with illegal phishing. And so, yeah, I mean, this is, this is a technology that's out of the box. There's no way we're gonna put it back in. And like so many technologies and as an historian of technology, you'll know, right? It's, <laughs> it's, it's just once it's out there. And so basically that'll have to be watched and tracked. And it's one of the reasons I wrote the book because strangely, I think it's, it's kind of like Microsoft for Earth, their division that's celebrating AI as saving the planet. They don't like to talk about that side of AI. <laughs> they like to talk about how AI mapped you know, deforestation in ways that help predict where you know, we were gonna see illegal activity and help the state stop some of the illegal logging, right? So it's all been positive, 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 but it won't be that. It's gonna be a complex, messy process. Yeah, so Dolly, you had a question? Yeah, um, thank you so much. I was um, wondering about, in your exploration of different examples of AI, um, how often people are using nature mimicry or they're thinking about something that happens in the natural world and then trying to reproduce that through their AI, or they use a natural model for something. Like let's say, oh, here's how a spider builds a web. So therefore we should build a web like that. Do you see that at all in, in examples? Yeah, that's a fascinating question. I'm not sure I, I'm quite qualified to answer that. Maybe somebody um, who's listening has a better, deeper understanding of, of the, the ways that um, AI is is trying to find innovative pathways forward, right? My guess is yes. I mean, certainly uh, when I very quickly threw out uh, that the AI form that particularly intrigued me is the, the deep learning technique and the neural networks in particular, and that's the one that that is um, uh, done all the breakthroughs in the game of Go and chess and poker, but, but basically it's the big one that's kind of, kind of rocked the world in the last five years. It's really artificial neural networks. And those artificial neural networks are broadly modeled in a very general way after um, an animal brain, right? And sometimes people will say it's the human brain and it's the, 
the neurons and so it's multi-layered, et cetera. So the big breakthrough has been, of course, computing power. It's been, of course, the algorithms and the mathematics underlying it. But, but the idea of using neural networks and artificial ones that kind of model uh, brains and, and have the AI actually learn itself. So it becomes self-learning rather than trying to figure out all the rules and what people sometimes call old fashioned AI, where the, basically the programmers go in and they have to do it uh, all themselves and figure out all the rules, right? Now we have basically uh, a brain that's mimicking the human brain very generally, I should say, <laughs> mimicking it and then teaching itself through data, right? And that's why chess is so powerful because the data is so pure because the data was just it's, it's the, 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 the game playing itself, right? That's why I didn't want Magnus's games in there because Magnus's games would just make it messier, right? <laughs> and so that, that, that's kind of using the, the, the mimicking of the animal world. But there may also be lots of examples where they're trying to do it specifically, you know, around, let's say, how spider webs are being done. I'm not sure. All right. So we have more questions in the chat. So here's this is a fascinating one, especially, I guess, from an environmental humanities point of view. So uh, Ben O'Hearan asks here, so he's curious to know what you think is more likely. Will increasing use of AI lead to the greater diminishment of certain forms of human and other than human relations? due to more intimate forms of control uh, over what forms of life are deemed acceptable in the name of sustainability? Or will AI open up new possibilities of multi-species relating and freedom? So yeah, yeah go, go ahead, go ahead. Thinking about multi-species relations, I think, and that, that uh, kind of us and, and animals and plants and how we relate to each other uh, in terms of both control and opportunity. Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating question and, and uh, it opens up a lot of big philosophical questions. I mean, one of the things is, is uh, you know, I think we are moving definitely in a dramatic direction towards potentially uh, having what you might even think about as a new life form uh, coming out of, out of technology for the first time, right? And those of you who've read James Lovelock's um, uh, latest book called The Novacine. I don't know if you had James Lovelock um, do a presentation. H have you done that? So James Lovelock last year published a, a book called Novacine to celebrate his 100th birthday. Those of you will be very familiar with James Lovelock. Of course, he's, he coined the idea of the Gaia theory and the idea that the earth was a living, breathing, uh, or could be understood anyway as a living, breathing um, organism. And he published this idea, which I think is, is, is quite provocative to at least think through that we've already left the Anthropocene and we're, we're, we're now just entering the Novocene. And for him, the Novocene is a new epoch that is not uh, the age of humans so much as the age of, of artificial intelligence and, and the movement of humans and artificial intelligence into emerging uh, world. And that for him, he's very optimistic about AI and he sees it as uh, one day deciding that it's going to need to care for and protect the earth because uh, it will innately understand that guy is necessary for life on the planet and why would it destroy life on the planet? It needs life on the planet. And he even thinks it'll be kind to humans. At one point in the book, he talks about, uh, well, 
uh, it'll treat us the way we treat house plants. It'll understand it's, it's, it needs to care for us. <laughs> I don't know if that's quite the right analogy, but anyway, the Novacine, which MIT Press also published, by the way, for those of you interested in it, is, is, is a futuristic, I think, wonderful reflection of a very optimistic person who for its 100th birthday decides to write yet another book. So there, there you go. I think that gets very much to this question about what this is going to mean for us interacting with the world, because if we have potentially a species that is, is, or maybe the species is the wrong word. James Lovelock uses that, I think, to just kind of provoke and get us thinking. But uh, to have, have uh, basically something out there that's so much more vastly intelligent than we are as a species, I think will change our understanding. Hopefully, I, I'm hoping we'll get more humility and there'll be less hubris and that'll help us have more sustainability. Because for me, one of the biggest problems the world's facing is there's not enough humility and there's way too much hubris. We think we can control everything and all we need to do is, you know, geoengineer the planet and we'll get out of this crisis of climate change. It's like, oh, so yeah. Anyway, great question. Very interesting question. We have a couple of questions and comments about I mean, the issues of AI reproducing human biases. So, uh, so Axel Flint has a question here about how does AI differ from other technologies uh, in terms of potential badness? So, because he sees, you know, as, as we'd also talked about, the AI we have now is not like genuinely intelligent. It's capable of doing relatively well-defined tasks. That's what it does, uh, which again, raises the question, you know, if the way we have defined this task is what limits us, uh, that also limits AI, right? Yeah, absolutely. And so, uh, you know, computer scientists always have uh, such wonderful phrases, memorable phrases. So one of their, one of their common ones is, uh, you know, garbage in, garbage out. And, you know, it's always something I keep reminding myself that if the data is bad, if the data is biased, if the data is, um, incomplete, if the data is simply wrong, uh, you could have dramatically bad consequences. Um, you know, you could have an airplane deciding to plow itself into the ground and kill everybody on board, right? If the data is telling it that this is something it should do to be smart, right? So, uh, you know, these are not intelligent. And in fact, I think artificial intelligence, sometimes it's, 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 a, it's, it's a real shame we use the word intelligence to describe it, it that way. One day it might have super intelligence and it might have kind of the ethics and the balance and everything, but, but no, right now it's, I wouldn't call it anything other than kind of narrow applications, super good at specific tasks. And it's also important, I think, to remind ourselves that it's also just terrible at some things. So one of the things that, that uh, we've long tried to master and I always keeps me smirking as a parent myself is uh, for, for all we've tried, we cannot get AI to be able to change a diaper. It just cannot do it because the baby just does too many different movements and it's just too complicated and it creates too much dexterity on the part of the, the robot to do it. And, and the baby is, is, and it just can't do it, right? And so, uh, you know, it, it's overwhelmed by a lot of even specific narrow tasks as well. And so there's a long way to go. And one of the things I think with AI and the kind of pathway forward for me to kind of get the good out of it is almost always, I think, we need to think of it as a partnership and we need to work with it and humans need to keep control and they need to keep the ethics and they need to keep the, 
the, the boundaries, uh, but they also need to jointly make the decisions. I think it's a really dangerous path when AI, for example, makes all decisions on, let's say, who gets a bank loan, which they're now starting to do. And it makes a decision about who we're going to who we're going to accept as an immigrant into our country or who's going to be defined as a refugee. I get deeply concerned when I think that that alone uh, would make decisions for efficiency reasons and to deal with overwhelming numbers. And oh, he's like, you could get horrendous bias prioritization around things that we don't want, right? Yes, it might make sense at one level that the AI calculates, but it might not be what a society wants, right? So, you know, we need human control here, but good humans to control it. <laughs> yeah, so... It's not always possible. <laughs> and your, your comment about the diaper is also uh, brings in parallels, I think, to things we've seen in the history of technology, and particularly where it intersects with, with gender history too. So if you look at the uh, history of the smart home, which has a pretty long history, you know, from the, you know, press button kitchen you, to, mm -hmm. to cook your meal. Which was one of the, like the very strong visions in the smart smart kitchen and smart home, which was very obviously designed come up with by people who had no idea about the actual labor that had to take place in the kitchen, and those technical solutions still require tons of human labor uh, in order to function. So, so the, this idea then of of technology as an almost magical solution that will do all this labor. Is, is a long-standing trope in a way. Um, so I think we could learn also something from history here. Fascinating. Uh, yeah, we have uh, some other questions. So Aster wants to ask a practical question. That sounds exciting. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I thought I would give a heads up because I, I felt a, li a little bit like this was a, a silly question in comparison to all the very sharp ethical and political questions being asked. But um, I've been so intrigued by your book cover and. I mean, what I want to know is, can you explain to me, like, simply, how do you ask AI to imagine heaven and earth? Like, a game I can understand somehow, but this just escapes me. <laughs> That's a wonderful question. I should be able to answer that question, considering that the book cover uh, did that. I have no idea how the, um, the computer science team uh, managed to create this uh, this AI that's able to, uh, well, there's different forms. So some AI are doing actual painting, right? But that's uh, robotic and you need, you, you need a certain level of robotic skill to pull that off. And of course, uh, there's now AI out there that's able to do incredible forgeries. Those of you who are interested in the illegal side of that, which is now creating real problems because sometimes the AI is better at doing the forgery than the original painter was at doing the painting. So was, anyway, this, it's complicated. But this was not a painting. This was a, a digital uh, interpretation, an, an image. And so uh, this is just one. So they fed it a whole bunch of different images uh, or different um, tasks to then create an image to reflect. And so this, this was just one that I thought was particularly insightful to the kind of book that I was trying to get at. And the other thing is that the title of the book itself, AI in the Wild, I actually thought that the cover was, was a nice reflection of what I was trying to get at because the big theme of the book is that um, there's an expression in computer science about 
when technology goes into the wild or when artificial intelligence goes into the wild, meaning it's moved beyond its creators and has now moved into the political, social, and cultural systems of the world, right? And then it starts to have all these effects that are no longer in the control of, let's say, the Microsoft programmers that made uh, the original technology, right? And so I also thought the kind of bursting colors. And so for me, it was just both incredibly optimistic, but also just a little wild out of control. That's kind of the play that I was doing. So I didn't specifically ask this, this uh, program to do that link. I, I chose it as a, one of the images that this AI had um, interpreted. Yeah. Well, that's, uh... And I can't make AI, you should all know. I have no <laughs> capacity to do that. <laughs> I can write books and teach political science and international relations. <laughs> Exactly. Well, it's a it's a brilliant cover, um, and I'm sure you're all looking forward to reading it. And we thank Peter for being with us here today to talk about AI in the wild, sustainability in the age of artificial intelligence, which is out with MIT Press. So thank you very much, Peter. Thank you all very much for the opportunity to chat and, and the fabulous questions from all of you. It really was a fascinating conversation. Thank you.